Hey, welcome back. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Everything centerfire and rimfire. Uh, we have a special guest with us today. We'll get into that a little bit later. But what I wanted to do is cover up some of the questions that have come on on the uh, for the podcast through the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast uh, email. Um, I'm here again with Dave. How you doing, Dave? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, just uh, got a day off finally. Oh, you do, huh? <laughs> wow. Well, wow. from work anyway. Yeah, from work. I hear you. I hear you. Anything exciting going on down there in the valley? Uh, well, just the uh, the the current border situation, but we'll leave that out on the politics side. But yeah, other than that, I have a there is a team match going on down here on Sunday. I may or may not be shooting. We got to figure that out later today. But other than that, it's pretty quiet. Uh, you know, except for the border crisis. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, cool deal. All right, man. Well, let's let's get into this. I want to get to our guests, but I wanted to answer some of the questions that had come up uh, on the Rifles Only Accuracy podcast, uh, shooting related. Uh, the first one I want to talk about came in from, from Oscar, and um, he has proposed that uh, at matches, instead of saying impact or hit, that we say, orale. So I'm thinking uh-huh. that I think it was that was Oscar. Controlling. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that Oscar. Uh, another one that came in, uh, a gentleman asking a question. He was out shooting around, I don't know, right at a thousand yards, and he was had a question about how the angle would affect it and that some of the older shooters told him it wouldn't matter because they were shooting at an angle that was seven degrees. And I wanted to let him know he, he felt like it did matter. And so I just kind of ran some numbers for him. And so the, the cosine for that angle is 0.992. So let's say that your data for 1,000 yards is 7.3. You would take that uh, times 0.992. And what that gives you is 7.24. So I don't think you're missing because of a seven degree angle. I mean, you and we do this in the in Colorado a lot, you know, at our high angle courses, and you've got to be really far or you've got to be really extreme angles. But I just wanted to get that covered. Yeah, um, I forget what the number is, but it's uh, I used to have it memorized, but it's it's got to be. You'll know it's got to be extreme uh, at least for our purposes, or like you said, really far away. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, another one came in, and uh, this is gas guns for competition. Mm-hmm. I guess the circuits that we're doing i think they still have the the gas gun events don't they uh, uh, or they're not. they're bouncing back and forth they they had uh they had some a gas gun division and, and that didn't go over well and i thought they were going to try to do a, or maybe they had a gas gun only matches and uh the best i could tell it's just never really you see guys a few guys at a match doing it a handful of guys which is cool but it, it hasn't taken off enough to really uh warrant its own thing uh like everybody wanted it to yeah, I, mean, I don't really care one way or the other. I mean, I'll shoot bolt gun, I'll shoot a gas gun. You know, the, the now with the calibers that we're using, six fives and six millimeters. You know, you get find somebody out there that can make one up for you. I don't really have a problem. I know that the uh, two two four Valkyrie was found a home in the in the gas gun, but even there's some bolt guns out there chambered in that. But I think that was the gas gun initially, and people were having pretty mm-hmm. good luck with that. Some other people weren't having good luck with it, but. You know, I, I don't think that uh, I don't think you're at a disadvantage at, at all. I had a really long talk several years back with uh, George Gardner, and we were talking about the difference between accuracy on a gas gun and a bolt gun. And it's uh, the thing about the gas gun is because every time you pull the trigger, just like any auto loading gun, you're going to get three recoils. Mm-hmm. The one is when the stop, the next one is the bolt and bolt carrier group coming to the rear to eject the spent cartridge, and then a counter recoil going forward. So I know I pull my gas gun, I get one recoil. But then you ask them, okay, well, what about whenever you get to the end, end of that magazine? You know, when you get to the end of the magazine, do you know that you're out of ammo or do you think you had a malfunction? Well, I know I'm out of ammo. I said, yeah, because you didn't feel that third recoil whenever the gun reloads itself. And so 
yeah, that's just the thing. They're just as accurate. You just got to drive them three times as well because you're going to get three recoils on it. So that's that's kind of my answer to that. Uh, yeah, I, I've told people before, if uh, if you really want a good trainer, uh, go get a gas gun. And if you can shoot the gas gun well, you're going to shoot the bolt gun well. Yeah, if you want a really good trainer, get a muzzle loader. Uh, that works out pretty good. <laughs> anyway, and then we still have uh, also asked for an update on the night match that we're doing out here. We're doing it the weekend after the time changes, and that's going to be that's going to be a, a rimfire match. And so that is still on. Uh, I don't have my calendar in front of me, so I can't give you that exact date. But it's the following weekend after the time change, and um, it'll be just pretty much the same thing. You don't have to have night vision or anything like that. I'm going to light this place up, but that, that's still a go. Cool. Cool. All right. Do you have anything else before I get in with our special guest today? No, no, because I think this one might, we might be here for a little while with some questions for him or talking to him. So might as well jump right in. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, a long time ago, I met a gentleman uh, through the shooting world and we became friends. And he is, uh, uh, I, I'll get him to explain exactly what he does, but the barn out here at Rifles Only, he actually put this barn up. Um, he was a competitive shooter for, for quite a long time. Uh, everybody in the industry pretty well knows him. His name is Jordy Richardson. Hi, Jordy. How you doing? Good, man. How are you? Doing good, man. I was just going to wonder if people might be interested in that Texas accent that you have. Where are you from? How'd you get here? So, uh, I am from Australia, Australian native, now dual citizen for uh, about six years. And I came from a little town in Queensland called Gundawindi. And I came over 24 years ago, and I came over training cutting horses. So I started out in, actually started out in Florida for almost a year, and then moved up to Texas, and have kind of planted here full time. Um, trained cutting horses for about 12 years competitively. Uh, it was predominantly a, a colt starter, two year olds all the way to three year olds, all the way through to their show career. I did well. I think I won about. Fifty, sixty thousand dollars in the show arena, and uh, one day I decided that it's it's a damn hard way to make a living, and got into construction, and uh, construction business took off, and I got bought out about twelve years ago by the current company that I work for, um, Barons and Associates, and so we do acoustical controls around natural gas compressors and pump jacks and drill rigs. Um, generators on hospitals and and uh, in, inside larger warehouses and facilities. So that's currently where I'm at now. All right, all right. So I know that you do this. You do this pretty much all over the United States, don't you? Yep. So basically, we go from Canada. We have an office in Canada, California, Colorado, Alito, Texas. Here, where I live, um, we have a yard in Phoenix, Arizona. We have a job currently going on in Mexico, and we have a job about about to start in Guadeloupe. That's that little French island down off the oh, it's near Saint Lucia, out that way. Wow! Wow! So right. we we are spread out. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a pretty good company to work for. Well, good man. Well, good. I'm I'm glad you're you're continued success on that. That's that's awesome. That's really good news. Well, uh, like I say, I, I know you through the shooting community, and um, I wanted to get you on for a non-shooting topic. And this is something that I know that a lot of people are interested in and a lot of the shooters that are out there who know you are going to be interested in hearing about this. But you pretty much uh, stopped shooting and started doing uh, dual-use motorcycle riding. And you've recently done a trip 
I think you took 10 days to go back roads from uh, the Mexican border to the Canadian border. It's something called the, the Continental Divide Trail. Uh, can you explain to me what the, what the CDT is? Yeah, so the CDT, <coughs> Continental Divide Trail, is basically a bicycle-slash-motorcycle trail that goes from Antelope Wells, New Mexico, and travels up the Continental Divide on and off and ends up in a little town called Eureka, Montana. And about eight miles north of Eureka, you'll hit the Canadian border. And that's in the bottom of British Columbia. It's about where the Alberta-British Columbia border hits hit the U.S. border. So, yep, it, it, it would be... I was under the impression that it was 80% dirt. It's probably more like 70% dirt and 30% pavement, blacktop, bitumen, whatever you want to call it. Um, now that I've ridden it, I, I know that. So there's a guy, the main guy, his name's GPS Kevin, and you can kind of look him up um, online, and you can buy an SD card from him, and you throw it in your GPS, and it and it gives you three lines. It gives you the blue the blue trail being the main trail of the CDT. It gives you a green trail for bypasses, um, which is predominantly all blacktop. And then the red trails are the more gnarlier, more difficult parts to do. It just depends on how you're feeling, how fast you ride. And they're actually not too bad. A couple of them got a little rough, but no, they're not, they're, they're not as bad as what I thought they'd be. So, yeah, you start at the bottom. Um, I actually you hold my bike to the bottom, and I met a, a an ex-shooting buddy of mine, Freddie Voloff, who's a firefighter in Bakersfield, California in Las Cruces and we rode down the border and yep, 10 days later we, we ended up in Canada and unbelievable ride just uh, through the countryside and through, through a lot of remote areas. It was, it was a pretty, pretty good experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you know, <clears throat> a mutual friend that we have, uh, Andrew Bluebaugh, uh, he, yep. he's, he's done this and he, he did it on foot hiking. And uh, I think, I think, I don't remember exactly. I know I was in, intrigued whenever he was telling me about it, but it took him several months to make that trip on foot. Did you see anybody else on foot out there? I did. I, I passed several guys and actually stopped and talked to a few of them. Um, one guy that struck me was probably in his mid-20s, and I think I was in the middle of Wyoming, basically looked like riding through the moon in some lunar area, and I I see a dot in the distance and I stop at a cattle garden. There's this kid sitting on the side of the road eating a payday candy bar with a bottle of water. And I'm a little concerned for him, making sure he's all right. But he, he knew what he was doing. He said he had six liters of water and enough food to get him the next 90 miles to the next town. So, yeah, more power to those guys. I, I don't know how they can do it, but it's, that's a pretty unbelievable achievement. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, Andrew, he's done. He's done all three. He's done the Pacific Coast Trail, the Appalachian Trail, and the CDT. And uh, I used to, I used to tease him. You know, work on the side of the road. You know, at a lemonade stand, so that he could get enough money to go and, and do these hikes that he wanted to do. But uh, <laughs> but at any rate, he. Did, I know that some of the planning. You know, it's been a while since I've visited him about it. But some of the planning that he had was he actually you know had certain dates that certain uh, items would be sent to him to certain places along the trail in the mail, like a time when he knew he was going to need new shoes or new socks or, or things like that, you know, snacks, everything else. So he had, you know, people mailing stuff at certain dates. I think he said that, uh, you go to the post office if something's there, you know, it, it'll stay there for 10 days if I remember correctly. So he has to show up in that, in that window 
where he can get his package. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, a lot of planning that, that goes in to do that on foot as well as, as well as on the, on the dual use bike. Like how, how did you train for that, Jordy? So basically I'm, I'm, I'm relatively fit anyway. I'm a working foreman. I, I do work out regularly, but I step that up. So I, for a month prior to this ride, I, not not just prepping the bike and mentally prepping, I, I physically started working, doubling up my workouts from, you know, a couple of days a week whenever I get to it, wherever I think about it, to five days a week for about three weeks. Um, mostly core and upper body. There's a lot of standing on the foot pegs. Um, when you're off-road, you're up on your pegs and cornering your sit. And when you get on the blacktop, obviously, you're sitting just because the wind buffering. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I did put some effort into staying, staying physically fit, and, and it did. It helped a lot. I didn't, I didn't really fatigue the whole trip. About the only thing you get sore is your ass, and there's no training for ass. You can sit on your ass all day long on a block of wood if you want, but it's, it's not the same. It's, it's the vibration of – it's not the bouncing up and down. It's just simply the vibration of sitting on that bike. And, and that's – I hate riding blacktop, and that's, that's where it usually gets is long distances on the blacktop. In the dirt, it's not so bad. Yeah. So, yeah, phys- physically, I think you want to work – do some weights and work some upper body um, and core, and, and, and you should be good to go. And that's not saying you need to. You could jump on your bike and just go Freddie doesn't get a lot of time to work out and he's a heavier set guy and he didn't have any problems. I mean, you get into some of the gnarly stuff, it's going to wear you out right or wrong. Right. So, yeah. But you've been, you've been riding those, those backcountry trails a lot over the years in Colorado. Never, never a trip like this, but I know I've been up there training and, and we've spoken on the phone where you've been in a different part of Colorado. Uh, do, do you think that helped just with your, you know, your, uh, your skill on the bike to be in those, those more gnarly areas? Yeah, and, and and that kind of gets into the other topic. So the bike I took on the trip was a Husqvarna seven hundred one, which is a which is a large single cylinder. It's the largest single cylinder bike on the market, and it is basically a KTM six ninety. Most people know the KTM six ninety more than the seven hundred one. Husqvarna was bought out about twelve years ago by KTM, mm-hmm. and also in Gas Gas. So they're all manufactured in the same place. They're basically the same bike, different colors, different plastics. That bike weighs about 330 pounds dry. Mm-hmm. Um, I kitted the bike out with a front rally kit, which has a larger windshield just to keep the wind off view. And it takes a lot, it, it, it lightens the bike up in the front end a little bit. And there's a company called Raid Garage, and they make a 1.1 gallon auxiliary fuel tank that actually you pull all the airbox out and it fits in under the seat. And so that, that pushed my fuel capacity up to about 300 miles, but it also adds a bit of weight. So I carried approximately 75 pounds a year. So if you add all that up, I'm close to 450 pounds. So as a trainer, I have a KTM XCFW350, which is basically an enduro. So it's a, lot, it's a, it's a softer sprung motocross bike, I guess you could call. Mm-hmm. And that bike, is about 275 pounds wet and take that bike and, and do a lot of slow drills. Like static balance is the number one thing. When you're riding a motorbike, if, if you can ride as slow as possible across the field, 
like, and without dabbing your feet down, standing on the pegs, try to practice balance and like figure eights on full off turns. You'll see a lot of training videos online. So you start slow, you learn to pull off figure eight, basically stand perfectly still on the bike without falling over. Then you get into riding faster on trails and single track and dropping your bike and picking it up and jumping logs and all of that definitely helps. When you get onto your heavier bike, it makes it a whole lot easier. What is, yeah. what's, a, what's a single track? I think that that's kind of the terminology people might not know. Yeah, so, so single track is literally, you, you, you've seen cow pads before where cows walk through the path and they leave a single track. Yep. It's the same thing. It's like where the cows walk the water to the pond to take a drink. It's a, just a single line track through the brush. And literally at, at times you can barely stick your handlebars between trees and, and it may open up, but in Colorado and Utah, there's, there's Texas not so much, but there's a lot of just single track everywhere. And then you get into double track. Double track something you ride a four-wheeler on. Two, basically two tracks in the ground. And some of that is deep trail, and some of it's narrow enough that you can get an ATV in and maybe a side-to-side. But a lot of that's still good, flowy uh, stuff to ride and good practice. So you, you start off on, on the pavement if you've never ridden before, then you can get to riding in the pasture, then you ride double track, and then you get yourself down to single track. And a lot of places, single track's good because these, these side-to-sides and ATVs get on a lot of that double track and make cornering bumps when they break and accelerate, and they, they do tear these trails up pretty badly. So some of the single tracks actually really, really to ride just for the fact that there's only ever been dirt bikes on it. Right. What all equipment did you take with you? So, um, so the bike from stock is very modified and it's not something you have to do. But the main thing, like number one, first thing is fuel range. If, if you have a bike, like you get into the twin, Freddy Road is 790, KTM 790, and he has about 230 miles of fuel range. These bikes get anywhere from 50 to 70 miles per gallon, depending on what terrain you're riding in. So fuel capacity is number one. If you don't have a large fuel tank, you're going to have to carry a fuel bladder. So fuel bladder is basically a bag that's made to carry fuel or aluminum canisters that are made to carry a gallon of fuel or whatnot. And, and obviously they add quite a bit, probably the most weight to your bike. Second thing, if you're doing day trips, you're going to carry tools and a spare tire, a tube and or a repair kit and maybe some of those small uh, CO2 canisters there, you tire up, and that's probably about it. Put on a hydration pack on your back and, and go ride. These long trips like the CDT, you've, you've got to break it down. Camping, you need a sleeping bag, air mattress, pillow, a tent, and you you know you you've got all your gear to camp with. And then you then you've got cooking like a jet boil with fuel, a couple of small pots, pans, cups, bowl, and a fork, spoon fork thing. Yep. And and we carried you don't have to, but we carried the dehydrated meals, which honestly nowadays they're making some pretty damn good ones. Some of them are, uh, you know, depending on how fussy you are, they're, they're good enough to eat. We ate we ate quite a few of them, so I carried. I carried two breakfasts and two dinners, and that was that was plenty, to be honest. And they they were more emergency than anything. If we got stuck out somewhere, at least we could eat. Um, and then tools again, 
a lot of these bike manufacturers like KTM, for the 701, you can Google 701 tool roll and it'll give you a canvas roll with basically every tool you need to get yourself out of trouble on a, on a 701 or a 690. The bigger bikes have some slightly different size torques and stuff. So a tool roll, an air compressor, or CO2 cartridges. Um, I carried an air compressor just, just because on a long trip, it, we've got the room to carry it. Then your clothes, basically three T-shirts, three socks, three jocks, a, a toffee jacket, a pair of long pants. I had a set of those. You know those, you know those five-toe shoes you used to wear all the time, Jake? Those yeah. really lightweight. Like yeah. that, but without the toes, they were merrells. Merrells, or you can, have, you can take flip-flops if you want. It just depends on what countryside you're going in. As long as they can kind of roll up and fold up and be shoved in a bag. Um, what else? I carried a small tarp for a footprint from a tent. Uh, tank bag. So between my legs on the tank, uh, I carried all my electronics. So I had USB-C, USB-A, uh, the standard USB and uh, the micro charging cables. I had a drone. I had a Mavic Air, a uh, little mini drone, and its controller. And, you know, my, my phone charge is built into my bike. There's a really good company out of Australia called Quadlock. Mm-hmm. And you basically put the case on your iPhone, it snaps in and it charges and is vibration dampening, which is super important. iPhones. You, you, you attach them to a handlebar and put the vibration, your camera's shot in a day. Right. So lesson learned on that. I learned that the first time. So all my electronics would be between my legs and I have a jump starter for my bike or somebody else's bike. And a lot of times you'll do this in pairs. So if one of you got a jump starter, you don't both need one. Right. And, and, and you can also charge phones and stuff off that, you know, and then when you do get to a motel, you can boost everything up again. Yeah, so electronics, camping gear, cooking gear, fuel bladder, tools, and uh, tire changing gear. So I have two tire spoons. I have a 21-inch tube, an 18-inch tube. You can carry one tube. A 21-inch tube will work in your 18-inch rear. You can shove it in there. Trouble. Um, that's another whole thing. Tubeless tires, tube tires, tube lifts, uh, mooses. There's, there's pros and cons to all of those, and that's, that's another whole podcast by itself. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's about everything. And then on my back, I carried a backpack, and I had a, oh, man, I think it was nearly a two-and-a-half-gallon fuel bladder. I mean, water bladder. Yeah. And, and, and that's the key thing is, is, is carrying water. And, and, and you can stop and how you can stop and buy a steak and a can of veggies and, and a couple of beers and, right before you get to camp at a town or you can stay in town. Totally up to you. I think out of the 10 days, we did seven in town and three on in camp. So we intended on camping more, but being the first time, um, we kind of time stuff to try to hit a town. And then honest, honestly, we camped on purpose because just because we got sick of, sick of staying in town and most people are expensive. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, um, I know that, like, uh, speaking with Andrew on the hike, you know, he, he was very, very concerned about weight, you know, and like, uh, the backpack, you know, the extra, you know, backpacks always come with like two feet of extra strap, you know, on your adjustments across your shoulders. 
And so like he would cut those, he'd take his toothbrush and, you know, cut the handle in half, you know, things like that just for weight. Um, are, are y'all to that degree on, you know, are, are you watching it? Is it something that's really, really important or something that you could just watch in a little bit? So this is the way I look at it. I, I laid everything out on the ground and basically packed all my stuff into my luggage. So let me cover luggage real quick. So there's, there's about four major players in luggage. Moscow Moto, which is what Freddie and I both use. There's Giant Loop. Um, there's uh, Wolfman Luggage. And there's another big company I can't think of right now. We use soft luggage. There's hard panniers and there's soft panniers. Hard panniers are more for the bigger GF type guys. Mm-hmm. Make they're dangerous on single track and double track. If you get too close to a tree, those things will pull you off your bike. And when you do wreck and dent them up, they're harder to repair. Okay. Um, they'll break your leg, get your leg under them. Soft, soft panniers, they, they are easier to pack more shit into and they are probably a little easier to, you know, you flip the lid open and it's easier to get all your stuff out. Moscow Moto system is five bags, and they measure all this in liters. There's a 22-liter bag that sits on top, which I had all my uh, tent, sleeping bag, air yeah, mattress, all that stuff in, and I had one full of clothes, one full of cooking, one full of tools, and one full of spare tire stuff. So you can unsnap these things and pull the whole cooking bag out if you want to cook. So it, it organizes them into sections. And giant loops, similar. All of this stuff is 100% waterproof. You put it in there and you kind of roll the top over and snap it up. Mm-hmm. How important they are. So once you've got everything packed in your bike, if you were to go out on the grass and lay your bike on the ground, if you can't pick that thing up, you've got too much shit. Right. <laughs> you need to understand that if your bike goes down, you have to be able to pick it up. That yeah. being said, it's like riding a horse, man. You, you, your bike's packing all the stuff for you. Right. You can't, you can't just go buy a 690 throw all the crap on it. I weigh I weigh just under two hundred pounds and you jump on that bike and go down the road, you've got to respring that thing. They come they come for some reason, the Austrians must all be skinny because they set those bikes up for hundred and seventy five pounds factory. Okay. And there's no, there's nobody that's hundred and seventy five pounds plus luggage, like I said, by the time I jump on it, I've already I'm already twenty five pounds over factory weight and then I'm throwing another hundred pounds of crap on there. We need to respring that bike. So once it's all on there, yeah, I mean, my bike's carrying the load for me, and that's something you need to shake down and practice ride. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, uh, Jay Ruby, Josh. Mm-hmm. He's over there in McKinney. He, he got a 690. He's a big boy, and he had to, he's got to respring that bike, and I told him, throw all your gear on it to start practicing riding because that, that weight distribution you got to learn to ride your bike packed compared to unpacked. It's a night and day difference. Yeah. So, no, I'm not cutting toothbrushes and stuff in half, but I personally got online and watched a ton of YouTube videos on traveling and camping and everything off of the bike and learned a lot before I left. I packed mm-hmm. my bike, I rode it, I took shit out, I, pa- I rode it, I took stuff out, and I, I got myself to a pretty skinny list. And honestly, I didn't miss I didn't miss anything. There was nothing. There was there was there was one point where, you know, I was done with my drone. I would have loved to get rid of it. It took it takes up quite a bit of room. But other than that, no, everything else seemed to work out pretty good. Well, cool. Well, I had that as one of the questions. What would be with that? 
the must-haves on a trip like this or a nice-to-have? And any after doing it, was there anything else you would have left behind or anything that you're going to take next time? Um, <clears throat> not really. I'm kind of set for now. Um, if I decided I'm not staying in motels at all, which is actually a really cool way to do it. It's, you know what it's like. You light a fire and sit by the camp and cook out and tell bullshit stories and stuff. It's a lot better way than sitting in a motel room. It is nice to go to, you spend a lot of time in Colorado like me, the breweries up there are unbelievable. It's like I don't drink beer at home on purpose. It makes you fat. But when I go to Colorado, I go to every brewery I know and I go to a different one each night and try different stuff. And so, um, well, you're Australian, you have to. Yeah, exactly. You've got to maintain the status. Um, no, at, the, at this point, I, I think I had all the tools I need. I know there were some tools I didn't have that I threw in, um, mainly because I had a chain break doing 60 mile an hour. Fortunately, I just got onto the blacktop and um, busted my chain. I, I, I guess I had, my chain was a little tight. And a frock come up into my sprocket and it popped my master link out and that chain flew off and I got lucky. It What happened was it wedged itself down between the clutch slave and the front sprocket. Mm-hmm. So the front sprocket could keep free spinning mm-hmm. and it didn't lock my back wheel up. I got I got pretty lucky anyway and pulled off the road and uh, some cowboy from the ranch next door brought an impact and 27 mil over because I had a 27 mil wrench that actually undoes the front wheel axle but I couldn't get it in there to get the sprocket off mm-hmm. and if it wasn't for that kid showing up just he just happened to be coming right by on a four wheel and went and got me an impact and 27 mil we pulled it off and got that chain out of it otherwise I was screwed yeah. I would have had to send Freddie back to 30 minutes each way to, to the closest town to find go to a napper and get a, sub, a sprocket and bring it back mm-hmm. so I since then thrown in some extra tools so that but leave behind Unless you're, so I did a full little documentary on this thing and, and, and put it on Vimeo and I'm actually finishing the second one up right now. If I wasn't trying to film all this, you could do all of this with a cell phone, to be honest. I would have probably left GoPros and the drone at home. Yeah. Um, but other than that, that's it. I would have, everything I had, I, I kind of took. Oh, well, did you, did you have any scary moments up there? Yeah. So when, so when I, before I even left, and I spent some time in Canada. Bears, man. <laughs> and when we got up to Montana and into that area, we, we camped. And we, we stayed at a little town called Sealy Lake. And when we pulled in there, we couldn't. There, there was a hippie music festival going on. We couldn't find a Motel One and, and had trouble finding a campground. So we got on Airbnb and this guy had an RV slot that had a cover and it was going to rain. So I'm like, hell, let's let's book this place. So we pulled in there, and I'd kind of been messaging the owner, Dave was his name, who, by the way, was a really good host and even let us take a shower in his house and whatnot. And I mean, he didn't have to do that, but he did. Uh, he had told me, he said, yeah, there's a, there is a bear in this area. We saw him yesterday, like kind of down there where you're camping, but it's a black bear. And he and then went went on to proceed to tell us the story about the lady fifty miles down the road that got dragged out of the tent and fed to a cub. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, this is awesome. You really needed to tell me that story. Well, sure enough, at about midnight that night, that damn bear came in around our 
camp there and we could hear him in the middle of the night and uh which which brings up the subject of yes i carried a gun for the whole trip i think most of the states we went through it was legal to yeah but i don't care even if it wasn't i was going to carry it <laughs> yeah and so i so i basically slept with a gun in my hand all night all night that night after i heard that bear in camp uh yeah, so that was probably the scariest. And then losing that chain wasn't really scary. It could have been a bad situation, but I learned a valuable lesson. Don't run a master link on a long-range trip. Go ahead and rivet your chain on and be done with it. I don't yeah. think that chain would have come off otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, but no, other than that, all the people and all the towns were friendly. The, the shooting community has always been my best group of long-term friends i've made more best friends fortunate to have so many friends in the shooting industry and the 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 bike motorcycle industry the adventure biking dual sport biking industry is the same when i went up to colorado the other day uh richard dias is another shooter that lives in in thornton colorado there he's into dirt bikes too and i called him the other day and i took my 350 up there and we were going to ride Saturday and he wasn't feeling well. So I went out by myself to Rampart Range and pull in the parking lot and unload my bike and start throwing the gear on. And the 60 year old man pulls in beside me and we start talking. Same thing, similar interests. Shooting people are similar minded. Um, I'm like, I've never ridden here before. Do you know the trails? He's like, yeah, I've been riding out here for a long time, but you're welcome to join me. I'm like, cool. I'll, I'll ride with you. Then another guy pulled in. Long story short, the three of us rode 30 miles that day on single track, which is a long way on single track. Mm-hmm. We basically rode from 7 in the morning till about, I think it was nearly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, stopping along the way and talking and struck up a friendship. And I made a little made a little movie for the day and emailed it off to him. Most, I met a guy in the middle of uh, Colorado who was riding the Trans-American Trail, which is another one we could get into. It basically runs from North Carolina to Oregon. Stopped talk him side of the road he does it basically every year got his name and his phone number and his email and oh next year i may ride half the tap with him so it's well, nice. the people you meet along the way that's the big similarity between the shooting community and the dirt biking community uh wade studerville that you and i both know that guy there's him and his sons are big into dirt biking so yeah. I, I need to meet up with him and go for a ride with him i mean there's there's, there's a lot of people with it's just that it to me it's a similarity, and I've already made a lot of friends in the in the adventure sports industry, and yeah, it's 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 so similar to shooting. I, I just love it. Well, good, good. Well, hey, on this trip, uh, it, what was the coolest thing you saw up here? I mean, you're going through some of the, I mean, some really really interesting areas, remote areas. What's the coolest thing you saw? Probably the two. To me, the two best parts of the trip was Yellowstone National Park, mm-hmm. was really cool. Um, other than it was full of tourists this time of the year, but you know that's the other thing. Weather permitting, you really can't do this trip before July, right. and you you wouldn't want to wait much past like November to do this trip because the high passes simply aren't open. You get road closures and whatnot, so you've got that window to do this trip. Yellowstone was was pretty neat i mean it's it's spectacular um but then also you get into like colorado's probably the prettiest scenery 
some of the old mines and stuff. And then uh, Jackson, Wyoming is a town that's not actually on the CDT, but it's only a 30-minute outtake. Mm-hmm. And Jackson is one of the coolest little towns. I mean, there's horses and wagons going down the road. There's cowboys riding their horses down the main street. And, you know, it's Jackson Holes right there. So I would say Jackson, Wyoming, and, and probably Yellowstone were the two highlights of the trip. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But Colorado is the prettiest area. i tell you what shocked me. Northern New Mexico is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if you watch these Vimeo videos I've done, the the first part of New Mexico is boring as shit, and you just kind of haul ass through there. Yeah. And then if you get into northern New Mexico, it is freaking beautiful. And, and we got lucky with the weather. It had rained a lot the prior month, and it was green the whole way. Um, we, did, we did get into some road closures and stuff up north and fires, but I don't see how anything could burn where we were. Well, I, I know that I talked to I talked to some of my buddies up here in northern Colorado, and they're they're pretty smoky right now. So I, I guess y'all are further west than that, or were able to avoid most of that. Yeah, we saw a lot of smoke once we got to north. Once we got into Montana, we started seeing a ton of smoke, and that's where we hit a couple of road closures. It probably cut fifty miles off our main blue trail, but I mean, it is what it is. I don't think the I think it would be impossible to follow that blue line the entire way like any given year, you'd have to get lucky. So, and the bypasses aren't bad. I mean, you might have to backtrack nine miles and go around and hit it. You just try and hit it again as soon as you can, just keep trying. And, and like I said, we got, we passed three guys from Texas in Southern Colorado, mm-hmm. North Silver City. It had taken them eight days. We were on day three. We're on the morning of day three. So we're two and a half days into our trip. And these four guys, and they were elderly guys, they were eight days into the trip and they hadn't even, got halfway through Colorado yet so I said they'd been poured on and poured on they spent three days in Silver City waiting for the rain to go away crazy yeah you gotta expect delays up here in the western part of the US and you know because I know that you know we both know Frank and he'd he'd kick my ass if I didn't ask if you didn't see UFOs or Bigfoot I didn't see either but I do believe in Bigfoot is out there somewhere he's just gotta be I mean, if Frank, if Frank believes in it, I do too. Absolutely. I mean, I mean one day I want to grow up and be just like Frank. Don't we all? Don't we all? Except maybe a little, maybe a little taller so we can reach oh, something. Grow, grow down. One day I want to grow down and be just like Frank. Yeah. <laughs> so what about what about that with those, you know some of those passes up there? Um, you were talking about reroutes. Um, was it snow any any time? I mean, I know some of those passes uh, we were going to go do some like day trips and jeeps, and some of those passes just weren't open in that June and early July time frame. No, so we saw snow on the mountains. We never actually rode through any areas of old snow, and we got to I think it was eleven thousand eight hundred was the highest elevation we got to on mm-hmm. on the trail, which surprised me. I thought we might get a little higher. It definitely got cooler. So that's the other thing. I took, uh, you've got to take a rain shell. I forgot about that. So either you have waterproof, uh, outer riding gear, pants and jacket, which tend to be padded also for skidding down the blacktop or anywhere. So I took lightweight riding gear, across riding gear that's vented. 
Um, and that's what I started the ride in. And then when we got up higher elevations, I, there's actually days where I put on long underwear and mm-hmm. put on my winter riding pants and jacket. So you, that, that's the other thing you need to carry both of and is, is, is two sets of shells, a waterproof shell and whatnot. We hit rain and hail in Breckenridge, mm-hmm. Hoosier Pass, which is right before Breck on the south side. And we got hailed on pretty hard, like hard enough that I had to slow right down and all that stuff on the side of the road. Um, it lasted about 20 minutes and we bailed on through it. I had to get to a motorcycle dealership to pick up a tyre. Um, adventure bike tyres lasted lucky to get about, you'd be really lucky to get 5,000 miles out of one. I started on, I started on a used tyre that was a soft compound and I got 1,200 miles out of it and it was done. Yeah. So we were kind of barreling along trying to get breath and we did make it, but like I said, we got really lucky with the weather. That that soaked everything. Um, a lot of these gear, like Moscow Moto makes rain jackets for all their gear and then the other bags are waterproof. Um, yeah. So we just dried out our gloves and whatnot that night. And you, most of the motor, you want to buy a good set of motorcycle boots. So there's adventure riding boots that have, you can walk in them and they have tread. And then there's motocross boots. Motocross boots are like trying to walk in damn snow skiing boots. They're not fun. So if you're going to do adventure biking or dual sporting, I I recommend you buy something with a little more ankle flex and with a bit of grip on the sole. Mm -hmm. We walked around Yellowstone in those boots. Um, I I tend to like the Climb gear, K-L-I-M. They make a good product. It is a little expensive, but it's, man, it's just like, Difference between buying a Remington or a Savage off the shelf and buying a GA rifle, you cry, buy one, cry one. Yeah, I hear you. If you're going to do this, it's like that's another subject. It's 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 like a shooting sport. It is expensive. Um, don't half-ass it, and you'll be fine. Just not not just saying that. I mean, you've done multiple tests. Remember the rifle you built out of two by fours or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You can still shoot bug holes. It's it's not necessarily, but but something that conforms to you and fits better is easier to shoot. You right. know, the same with your gear. You, well, just, like, uh, just on a note with that, you know, because every, every you know prices are going up on, uh, pretty much in every industry you know, out there, and you know, shooting is you know it it, it can be you know expensive. Um, what do you think, what do you think your bike sitting there with all the stuff that you carried on this trip, you know, the stuff that was like minus, minus your camera gear and everything else, what do you think you have into that monetarily? So my bike's a 2020 or a 2070-690. That bike out of the dealership today, your tax title license at the door is about 13 five. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, I bought mine as a demo for 11 five. Mm-hmm. Let's just say let's just say 13 grand and then the moto gear the luggage is the next most expensive thing um so that whole setup is about fifteen hundred dollars you can add that to it and then um i have bought a better quality set of rims they're a thicker xl a60 rim that are basically bash proof yeah um they were about two thousand dollars for the pair and then your skid plate, your crash bars, your bark busters that go around your hand, they're all necessary. You have to protect your engine with the, with the, with the sump guard. You have to protect your hands and handlebar controls with bark busters. 
you, you need crash bars for when you drop your bike. Uh, the rack that holds all the Moscow Motor gear to the back of your bike, another $150. I've got an aftermarket exhaust that was about 750 bucks. You don't necessarily need that, but they, they, the factory exhaust is 10 pounds. You pull that thing off and put a four pound exhaust on, it's, it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Still tank conversion was another 500. And the number one first item you should buy when you buy an adventure bike is a seat concept seat. You can ride around all day on the factory seat, but you've got to get a better aftermarket seat. There's two or three major companies. Seat concept is probably the largest. That mm-hmm. seat's another $400. I've probably got about, I don't know if you add all that up, I've probably got about, I don't know, $17,000, $18,000 in that bike as it sits. There's some stuff on there you don't need, but those are the major players that you do. And then your riding riding gear, your helmet, the lighter weight helmet you get, the better. Klein makes the carbon-wrapped cryoids. Cryoids, that stuff, honeycomb shit they put in planes for impact. Mm -hmm. That's an $800 helmet. With comms, if you're going to ride in pairs, you need a Cardo or a Scala rider or listen to music and communicate with each other. You know, that system's not bad. That all totals about 800 in a helmet. And then a, a wet weather set of riding gear is about 400 bucks. And a, your dry weather stuff's about, you can get into it for about 150 for pants and shirts. Mm-hmm. So all totals, I'd say all totals. If you're going to buy a brand new bike and all the gear, and you're going to go on the road, twenty grand will get you going down the highway. Yeah. So two or yeah. three rifles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Unless you get, unless there's, I have seen some price uh, price about that. But again, you know, the, the thing about it is, we always talk about uh, about the price of our guns and everything else, and then you go to those guys that you know deal exclusively in double rifles, and uh, well, no, we're, we're we're not we're not we can't even really play. You know, whenever the starting starting Cost on that is 200k. So yeah, it, it depends on yeah. where you're going to go. I'm sure you yeah, can spend more if you want. Oh yeah, you can. And I I've spent more than that. I mean, I have two, three bikes, and you know, it it it, it gets up there a little bit. But there's no entry fees. There's no motel and and uh, ammunition costs. And I mean, man, that, if you're not sponsored, which helps me a lot, it. it it's an expensive sport shooting. It just it just isn't, especially right now when the China virus has ruined everything. I mean, you, you, there's no ammo. I mean, I'm, I don't know what three gun shooters are doing. I'm sure they're not even shooting. I don't know how. I haven't been in that industry for a long time, but that's got to be tough. Yeah. Uh, well, back back kind of on track for the for the trip. You know, in hindsight now, uh, after having done it, and I've asked two hindsight questions, but uh, is there anything you would have practiced more? Anything you would have done, like physically or practice on the bike, that you would have done more to prep for a long trip like this? No, like I said, you start with your slow drills. Um, yeah. Static balance and stuff is something you should do every day. Like when I jump on my dirt bike, I've got a little in hard enduro tracks set up here in my front yard. I've got concrete culverts, logs, you know, dirt jumps and whatnot, just to keep me on toe. I will start out doing slow figure eights and um, even wheelies, man. Just standing the front end of your bike up and setting it back down again. If you're gonna if you're gonna hop a log or a rock or something, you have to be able to get the front end of that bike off the ground at, at a slow pace. So you're basically standing on your foot pegs at a slow pace, coffee clutch, 
get your front wheel in the air and set it back down again. I'm not talking about riding a wheelie for 100 yards. Yeah. Just get the front of that bike off center. All those things, getting the bike off the ground, static balance, slow drills. I'll do a lap and then I'll go ride my hard enduro track. No, just miles, miles after miles. You've got to get on your bike and ride, ride, ride dirt roads. Push yourself past your comfort level a little bit every now and then. Don't just ride the same trail every day at the same speed. I mean, you need to, and, and motorcycles like rifles are dangerous things. You need to know what your limits are, but you also need to push yourself a little bit occasionally. Otherwise, you don't get better. You just maintain the same, the same deal. Right. Yeah. On the second uh, hindsight question, um, I know that you've done, you know, lots of day trips or maybe even a couple day trips, you know, before on your bike, but this was the first time you ever went out for, to, I mean, to tackle the CDC. And uh, what you think it, you think it changed you a little bit? You got a different perspective of, of, of you or the U.S. or riding or anything else after doing a, a long, hard trip like that? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain travel on two wheels and the smells and the sights and the fact that you can pull over anywhere at any time. It's not like being in a car. It's, it's hard to explain to people. Even beginners, people want to get into it. It's like just buy a bike and do it. Start, start slow and do it. But it's, 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 it's a unique way to travel and it's a, it's a fun and easy way to travel. And yeah, I mean, long range trips give you a lot of time to sit and, you know, sit and think and reflect on things. And some of the countryside you see, it's, it's, it's hard to explain to people that being on two wheels, it's, it's a different world and it's a fun world to be in. Um, I realized that I work too much. Like I'm a, I, I work hard and I, I work rapid and I'm all over the place and 40, I'll be 48 this year and it's time for me to start trying to do a little more of this now while I can. Um, I've got two, two awesome little girls and I'm hoping, you know, they're, they're almost six and seven and I'm, I'm hoping that one of them or both of them want to get into it. So I've got this goal of, getting them on two wheels and teaching them to ride and seeing if they're into it. If they're into it, they're into it. But if they're not, they're not. They're, they're, they're big on the horses right now, but I was too. But I've always been into bikes since, since I was a kid and never really had the opportunity until I came over here to do this type of thing. But, yeah, it's just a it's an awesome lifestyle. Like I said, there's good people in it. You can do it by yourself if you want. You can do it in pairs. I don't have a lot of close immediate friends around here that are into it like most of my really good friends that are not into it and I've tried to push some of them into it and some of them aren't interested some are but yeah motorcycle travel me going on long distance trips and riding trails I cannot stand riding on the blacktop but unfortunately you've got to get on it to go somewhere right yeah well, well what's next for you what's next for you in, in this uh, more trips uh, more smaller trips larger trips Yep, more more smaller trips before it. So the Trans American Trail is the next on the bucket list, and it's a twenty five day ride from one side of the US to the other, going the other way. Um, I may do half of it one year and half of it the next. Um, short rides. I'm going to go down to Big Bend National Park. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a a, a a long weekend ride, maybe a three or four day ride down there. And then Freddie, the guy that I rode with, he did Baja this year. 
Mm-hmm. Baja is definitely on the list. I want to go down to the tip and back. Okay. It's the only part of Mexico I want to go to. So Baja is a short trip. Big Bend is a short trip. Uh, end of September, I've got Colorado to the uh, Crested Butte area and ride single track up there with got a good friend, John Rory. He's a state policeman down there in Somerville State Park, near College Station. He's big on two wheels. Um, he actually one of the guys that's kind of pushing me more into getting back into it. Uh, we'll go ride Crested Butte for the week around that area. Sergeants all through there. Um, Colorado's awesome for riding. So that'll yeah. be a smaller day trip. The transition's a big one. And then and then future goals, honestly, is as soon as this pandemic goes away, I, I intend on riding from the tip of South America north to Alaska all the way through. And wow. when I'm riding Europe, I intend on riding Australia. I haven't haven't ridden much of Australia. Um, Huck Allen, you know Huck, my SAS buddy in Australia, retired. Yeah, I do know him. He is a massive adventure biker over there. And two to three times a year, him and a couple of his buddies do a different trip out through the outback of Australia and back. So I've, I've got to get, he wants to come over here and I want to go over there. So, you know, those are all lifelong big goals, but we'll see how it goes. And, until then, I'll jump on my 350 and zoom around here. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate there's 150 acres gravel pit next door to me here and the, the guy that owns it let me cut trails all over it. So I have a really good local spot to ride whenever I want. And that's awesome. That's which awesome. brings which brings up one more subject: spot mm-hmm. GPS, spot GPS, or satellite communicator. You're going to ride by yourself. You've got to have one. They're about 350 bucks, and they have a annual membership to make them work. But if you you need to have that SOS button, if you if you pick up big time and you break your femur or something, and you're out there by yourself, you need to be able to press that helicopter button. So they're they're a must have on a long trip. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we do. Uh, in the past, I've gone, you know, on the multi-day offshore fishing trips, and uh, it, that the spot, satellite phones, all of that stuff is is necessary. You know, it's, especially if you're, you know, out there, but even in the woods too. Like you say, if you get injured, you're going to need that communication, that emergency communication. So yeah, we'll get information. Yeah. Well, George, uh, like I said, the the you know, I I watched I watched your your video. I watched part one of it, and uh, of course, whenever you were on the trail. I was able to text with you a few of the nights, um, you know, just kind of giving me updates on it and everything else. I know that, you know, I'm real interested in that. And I know that a lot of the people that in the shooting community know you and some of them probably, I was talking to Andrew. He said that he didn't know that he was, he was really shocked that you did the CDP on a motorcycle. And I, I told him, I said, well, he's going to be on the podcast. So I know he's going to be listening, but um, I know that a lot of people in the shooting community kind of have that, that same kind of mindset, you know, for it. And uh, I just wanted to get you on and, and to explain the trip and tell us how you felt about it and the gear and everything else. And uh, we need to wrap this up, but I, I just want to thank you, man. I want to thank you for taking the time and taking the time to answer my questions via text message while you were on the trail. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on. Well, I, I appreciate you for letting me ramble on for hours about it, but uh, obviously I enjoy it. And any of you guys out there that are listening that want to get into this, Call me. You'll know how to get a hold of me. I'll talk, I'll talk about it for hours. <laughs> and part, part two I should have out this evening, so I'll send it your way when, when it's done. It's, it's probably even better than part one. Covers through Yellowstone and getting to the border and whatnot. 
couple nights. I really look forward to that. Send me a link whenever you get it. And guys that are listening out there, if you if you know Jordy, then you know how to get a hold of him. If, if you don't, uh, just send me an email to ROAP at riflesonly.com, and I will forward on any emails over to Jordy. Um, and again, I, again, Jordy, thank you. Thank you for taking the time with us. I appreciate it. All right. Well, hurry up and buy a bike. Well, I've got that KLX 140, but it doesn't sound like that's a very, very good one for that trip. It'd be fine. We'll just get a rope and tie you to the back of mine. It'd be good. <laughs> yeah, well, I had that. I had that bike, and you know, I whenever I first got it, you know, I have a, a dog out here that runs pretty good, and I've got this thing in fifth gear wrapped out, and my dog asked me. So, you know, it, it, it's not very good for those short highway jumps you have to do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank well, you. Cool deal. All right. Sounds good, brother. Thank you. And uh, again, guys, we're uh, taping this Sunday. We're having uh, Regina Milkovich and Allison Zane, the only two females that have um, that have won national level competitions. So what I want y'all to do, if y'all have any last minute questions, I was looking over my notes for that, and y'all have sent in questions. I have one, two, three, and a half pages of questions that y'all have sent in. So if y'all want to get anything in there, we're going to be taking that one on Sunday, or probably drop Sunday night or Sunday morning or uh, Monday morning. But again. Thanks for being out here. We'll thank all of our, our sponsors on the next one with uh, with Regina and, and Allison. But again, thank you, Jordy uh, and Dave. Thanks for sitting there and, and listening to us. Oh, no problem. No, I just keep my mouth shut when I don't know anything that's being talked about. Um, but yeah, yeah. we're going to get some uh, some uh, exit music if you guys want to stay on once the music off. And I'll turn this off and I'll get some info to put on the, uh, the description and a link to the video or whatever we can get. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Perfect. Thank you. 